When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. More than 285 million people around the world are visually impaired, four to five suffering from conditions that are actually preventable. 90% of these individuals live in developing countries without any access to many of the sight-saving treatments, checkups, and procedures that many of us take for granted today. My guest, Louise Harris-Salazar endeavors to help those close this vision gap with her work with Orbis International. Founded in 1973 with the goal of delivering training to the eyes of the world, the organization utilizes a network of partners, supporters, staff, and sector-leading volunteers to empower local communities with the skills and resources necessary to fight blindness on their own. As the organization grew over the years, Hospital-based training programs were added and long-term country programs established in Bangladesh, China, Ethiopia, India, and Vietnam. Today, Orbis has over 40 long-term projects around the world, as well as an award-winning telemedicine platform. Louise, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Well, thank you, Aaron. I'm so delighted to be here with you and to have this conversation. Thank you. So you and I, well, thank you for joining and for your time today. So you and I share an interesting history. Not that we've ever met each other, but we both have been in the kind of PR marketing branding universe. And you made the leap, I think, what, in 2017, so about four years ago, to join Orbis. Tell me a little bit about some of the calculus behind that decisioning. Full disclosure, and I know we spoke about this off air, like, ultimately, it's it's my dream to run a nonprofit. What kind, I don't know yet. And if anyone will have me, that'll be a miracle in and of itself. But I have a lot of respect for folks who are able to take some of those skills that you have and apply them for the greater good. So what was it that triggered that moment in 2017 to join Orbis? So, yeah, thanks for that question. It's been a really interesting journey. Like you, and I spent most of my career in agency life, actually, working with brands, major multinational companies, particularly in healthcare, technology and aviation. And of course, that took me into CSR and to the world of corporate partnerships and relationships that big brands have with nonprofits. So towards the end of my time in Asia, because I ran an agency, the Asia Pacific Operations for Rudafin, actually, in Asia, I was based in Singapore and moved to the US. And while I was in Asia, I was introduced to Orbis International, who actually are very well known in in that part of the world, particularly in Hong Kong, and sort of put it to the back of my mind and moved to the US where I continued to work in a global capacity with some of these major multinational brands. And I was curious about how I could actually take my skills I'd learned and transfer them into a life where I could actually do good so I could bring my skills to the nonprofit world, but with a professional lens. Because, you know, I recognize that 
good nonprofits who are run professionally, you depend on people who have those skills and the professional knowledge to run a nonprofit or to work with a nonprofit with that mindset. It's a different mindset. So when I moved to New York to take up this this global role, I reconnected with some of the team, the Orbis team, who I had initially met when I was in Asia. And they invited me to come and see their flying eye hospital, which was at LaGuardia Airport. And the only one in the world, yeah? It is, which I will talk to you more about in a minute. So the, the Orbis Flying Eye Hospital at that time, it was the, DC, it was the second generation Flying Eye Hospital. It was a DC-10 that was converted into a mobile teaching hospital. And I went to visit the airplane at LaGuardia. It was very, very rare for the airplane to actually be in the United States because it was spent its time flying around the world, teaching and training eye health teams to save sight. And so once I was on board that airplane and I met the Orbis team and they told me the stories and they told me what they did, I was completely blown away. And at that moment, I thought, this is exactly the organization that I want to work with, because it's this amazing blend of healthcare, aviation, technology, bringing all of those three industries together in a really interesting way and doing good and doing so much good. And that was at that time, I had a real desire to work for that organization. And then we fast forward a few years later to 2016, and Orbis were launching a brand new third generation airplane, which was an MD-10 aircraft donated by FedEx with the complete state of the art, highest technology packed plane that they were going to launch in the US in five cities and they needed some help. And they said, look, you know, we need some help to launch this new MD-10 flying a hospital, you know, could you help us? So I went in as a consultant initially. So I left my agency. It's a huge leap of faith. I didn't know whether I was going to be able to do this for very long. What was it going to look like? But I had this desire to do it. I took that leap of faith and it wasn't easy because I left this very secure, very stable environment. I was well known. I was well respected. I had great clients, but I needed to do this. I thought, this is my time. So I went in and I worked with the Flying Our Hospital Orbis team to launch the airplane. And then 18 months later, I was hired to build a global communications and marketing function at Orbis to take the organization to the next level. So that was my story. And I got to tell you, it's the best thing I ever did. This is the best job I've ever had. And I'm increasingly inspired every day by the people that we work with, the volunteers that do our mission for us and the incredible impact that sight saving can have on the world. It literally transforms lives. When you started through till today, what are the top three or four kind of common either unknowns or misconceptions around, you know, avoidable blindness and other kind of maladies of the eye and obstructions to vision and whatnot and disease? that maybe the common everyday listener might not be aware of, especially those who live in a developed you know, country and we have access to being able to get not just healthcare, but care for our eyes. We're able to get checkups, we're able to seek help when we need it and address things with the resources to do so. Yeah, so I mean, you're gonna be really surprised to hear this, but 1.1 billion people on this planet have vision loss of some kind. 
that's an enormous number, it's a huge number, and 90% of that is avoidable. And that is it's all sorts of things. In some cases, the treatment could be as simple as a pair of glasses, right? Or a cataract operation that is a very straightforward operation. 15 to 20 minutes is all it takes to fix a cataract, which transforms somebody's life. But if you don't have the skills to do a cataract surgery in a country, then you're not going to be able to see. And so it's absolutely heartbreaking and disturbing that so much of this blindness or vision impairment is preventable or treatable. And 90% of the people who do live with vision loss live in low and middle income countries. And that's precisely for the reasons that you described, because they don't have access to eye care. So you and I can go down the road, right? We can get eye screening really easily. We can get a pair of glasses really easily. And then our prescription changes over time. So we need follow-up care. But if you're living somewhere or you're born somewhere where you can't even get a pair of glasses, then you're going to live a life that's so difficult to even go to school or get a job or, you know, contribute to the community. Something that is so easy and so treatable and so preventable. Now, I had Warby Parker and Vision Spring on not long ago, which is fascinating. And one of the things that I had learned, it was now that I think about it, it makes sense. But at the time, I was a little surprised, was that there are larger cultural implications and factors involved when going into hyper-local communities, villages, and very poor communities around the world and telling them or helping them, not only do you have to explain that you're there to help, but also there's a perception that if you're wearing glasses, just for example, instead of having surgical correction, but you're having corrective lenses for the first time, you are actually seen as, you know, better than or greater than, and there is sometimes friction and there's division. How does, or does Orbis address some of those cultural disparities and cultural roadblocks as well to one, getting people to accept the help and two, to explain culturally that it is okay, one, you know, to wear glasses, two, to seek out and also help yourself and allow others to help you. Yeah. So the first thing that I think is really important to explain is that we work with a network of partners around the world. So we don't go into a country on our own. It is really vital to work with the partners because our whole mission is about training and helping build the skills and knowledge set of the people who are working in their communities. And every country is different. And as you say, culturally, there are different views about wearing glasses or even for, for young girls or women to get eye care. There are all sorts of stigmas, all sorts of cultural barriers. So we work with the local network of partners in countries and a lot of that is education and community outreach to encourage people to go and get their eyes screened. So a lot of the work that we do is at the community level, helping the partners on the ground to deliver the services and to be able to communicate and encourage people and help them understand and reduce the barriers to eye care. So that partnership model is really, really important because it really depends. And every country is different. In some countries, you know, we look at the knowledge gaps. So we, when we're training local eye care teams, we have to look at the entire eye health team. We don't just train the doctors, which are obviously really important, surgeons, doctors, but also nurses, community health workers. Anesthesia is a big part of what we do. If you're doing surgery on a child, we have to teach the correct procedures for anesthesia. And infection control is huge. We do a lot of work in Ethiopia. 
to help prevent the spread of trachoma, which is an infectious disease that leads to, if not treated, leads to blindness and a very, very painful condition where the insides of your eyelids actually turn in and scratch your cornea. And it's really, really painful. And so, but we can address that through education around face washing, for example, because trachoma is spread through flies. And then we administer on a major scale in Ethiopia antibiotics, azithromycin, which helps to treat and prevent spread of trachoma. So a lot of that is around education. And then a lot of that is at the community level, working with local health workers, community chiefs, etc., to actually distribute these antibiotics to save sight. There are so many needs and so many issues. And we've had tons of guests on that talk and address issues around, you know, shoelessness and how footborne disease leads to so many issues around the world. Half the world cooks over fire. And that also creates, as you can imagine, a ton of issues. There's avoidable blindness. There's a lack of clean water. There's, you know, lack of, you know, sanitation, soap, hygiene. I mean, there's so many things going on around the world. How do you pick and how do you force rank what locations you're going to establish yourself in? You've got 40 active projects around the world. How do you do that? And then you have one plane or two, and is that always in the air? It sounds to me like it's always in the air. It's always going somewhere and you're always training someone. 365 days a year, or 364 maybe. So yeah, so to give you some background, so we were founded, the Flying Our Hospital was what got Orbis off the ground, literally. It was founded almost 40 years ago because David Payton, who was an ophthalmologist in the US, traveled around the world extensively and he came back and he was just horrified by the lack of ophthalmologists, lack of training, the lack of eye care around the world. So he came back and he said, look, the cost of tuition and the cost of international travel is prohibitive for people to come to the US to train. So why don't we take the training to them? So that was how the idea was born of this flying eye hospital. And he had friends in the aviation industry. And he, together with United Airlines, managed to procure an aeroplane to create the first flying eye hospital. That was back in the day. And the flying eye hospital, which is a fully accredited teaching hospital, and it's more than that, it has not only does it have an operating theater and a whole simulation center on board the aircraft, but it's also a broadcast studio so that we broadcast surgeries. We might have a classroom at the front of the plane that has the local doctors who and the eye health professionals in country learning about the techniques, but also the surgeon is broadcasting in 3D to the classroom, which is also broadcast globally through our telemedicine platform, CyberSight. So we've really evolved since the days in the early 1980s to a very sophisticated model, which is not just a flying our hospital, that's just 20% of the work that we do. On top of that, we have these sustaining country programs. We have 14 offices around the world. So we don't go in there on short-term case, but we work with these countries on an ongoing basis. So we are always invited to the countries we go to. We work together in partnership rather than choosing where to go. But where we go is the places with the greatest need. So, you know, in a country like Ethiopia, we've been there for over 20 years. In Bangladesh, we set up there in 1985. Because you need ongoing, it's it's got to be sustainable. You can't just fly in, fly out. The airplane does fly in 
obviously pre-COVID, we haven't been able to take the aeroplane, as you can imagine, during this period. But we've adapted tremendously and the upsurge and the uptake on our telemedicine training platform has been incredible. So we've actually doubled the number of registered users on CyberSite platform and we're now in 200 countries. So we have, that's almost every country on earth actually has access to our training, mentorships, library of resources, webinars, live lectures, 200 countries. So we're being able to scale up in a way that we've never been able to do before through this incredible technology. I think the only two countries we're not in is North Korea and Turkmenistan. Yeah, well, you'll probably never be allowed into North Korea, not in our lifetime, maybe one day, but I understand that. It's interesting about COVID because as we record this, I think more than 5 million people have died worldwide and India is in dire, dire straits. It's just awful what's going on right now. At the same time, COVID has forced all sorts of organizations to rethink their workflow and how they get work done, especially the good hard work of nonprofits like Orbis. And to hear you say, oddly enough, it sounds like you're through COVID able to reach even more people and train even more people thanks to your CyberSite platform, which you had started prior to COVID. But had you not had that, you might have been almost shut down and frozen for a little while, or you would have had to scramble to build that platform. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we relied on the innovation and creativity of our teams to actually pivot really quickly. So we launched the Virtual Flying Our Hospital program, which is a model where our Flying Our Hospital team were actually able to carry out the programs that were going to be done through the airplane, but in a virtual way. And so to do that, we sent actually artificial eyes to the people being trained in India, for example. So we were planning to go to India for a three-week flying eye hospital training program. Obviously, we couldn't do that, but we didn't want to let down the people. So you literally, you, you FedExed like fake eyeballs to India? We did. We absolutely Basically. did. Yep. We FedExed <laughs> fake eyeballs to India. <laughs> so it's like Halloween. It's okay. Exactly. That's amazing. So, and what was so great about it is we were able to actually train more people that way because you don't need to practice. So for example, residents, you can't practice on a patient. So you can practice on these artificial eyes and you can just keep on doing it until you get it right. And so this was an incredible, I guess, blessing for us to be able to have this virtual training plus the artificial eyes. They could video themselves, send the videos back to our team who would help them and they would mentor them, teach them the techniques and evaluate their work. And so we've been doing that throughout the year and basically adapting our models and working with our partners to help them. And our volunteer faculty, so we have 400 volunteer medical experts all around the world who do the training with us. Many of them were deployed to COVID, obviously, because the emergency of COVID meant that we had to, you know, we had volunteer faculty moving from doing cataract surgeries on, you know, a year ago to frontline work for testing for COVID, helping to eliminate, you know, COVID in their communities. And instead of going off to, you know, flying a hospital program, they were training in infection control, for example. So the U.S. is slowly coming back online, as are really only a handful of other countries around the world, based in large part on, you know, community immunity, herd immunity. You know, it's it's slowly getting better, but again, only in a handful of countries. And those are the countries that you don't really work in, right? So when do you envision and do you ever envision going back to being as physical in terms of your flying hospitals 
in a post-COVID world, whenever that is, when, and I mean world, I don't mean post-COVID US, I mean world, <laughs> do you envision it ever being the same or is it forever going to be more hybridized where you're going to continue to embrace virtual trainings in the way that you have through COVID? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. It's similar to companies trying to figure out how to go back to the workplace, right? Right. Are yes. you going to go back to, you know, 100% or is it going to be, you know, 50%? Is it a hybrid model? For us, it's absolutely going to be a hybrid model. It's going to be a blended learning. In-person training is really important. And I don't see that going away anytime soon in the future because you can't really, you know, it's so valuable, that face-to-face interaction, the relationships that are built between our teams and the and trust, and the Especially trust with your partners, it's trust. Yeah. It's trust. But on the other hand, the blended learning and the virtual training and simulation is absolutely going to continue and to grow even further. We actually now have artificial intelligence embedded in our CyberSight Consult platform, which means that you can upload a picture of an eye and within around eight seconds, the machine will be able to help detect if there's something wrong. Then the doctor can go on to get another evaluation. So this is cool, really cool stuff. Really being able to use technology And how we were founded on that kind of innovation and technology is going to increase. And I think that's most exciting. It's really exciting what can be done. Do you do any work in the U.S.? And it's a silly question. We don't. I'm just curious. No, the reason for that is because our mission is basically to help provide access to people who don't have access. In the U.S., there is access. There are many more trained ophthalmologists in this country per capita than in other countries. So, for example, in Bangladesh, there's only 1,200 ophthalmologists for a country of 160 million people. You think about that. Just think how hard that's that is. insane. It's insane. So the U.S. doesn't have that kind of a problem. So for now, we're not. But, you know, never say never. And we also have optometrists as well, which adds to the bulk, right? Even though they can't perform surgery, they're able to at least do the diagnostics and the testing, right? That is incredibly helpful. And that's not a common thing around the world either, optometry versus ophthalmologists. That's right. Exactly. I mean, a lot of the work that we've done in Bangladesh and India is actually helping working with the government to set up vision centers in rural areas. We've actually worked to help encourage the Bangladesh government, the importance of vision centers and to put them in the rural areas and to have them run by women, for example, to, to alleviate that burden and to be able to get it into the community. In Bangladesh in particular is interesting. They've seen an influx of refugees because of conflict in Myanmar, right? How have you been able to navigate, because especially in, in areas like that where they're less stable than other parts around the world. How are you able to navigate that and that conflict and keep people safe and also maintain, you know, your mission and your vision? Yeah, so Bangladesh is interesting. So we, we did a study actually in Bangladesh to evaluate the sort of the urgent need for eye care amongst the Rohingya population. You know, these are people who've been displaced, who've had a lot of trauma in their lives. And so we were approached in 2018 to help with screening. And so we've set up a vision center with a partner in the Southeast Bangladesh in Cox's Bazaar. So we have a vision center there. And since 2018, have managed to screen 68,000 Rohingya, as well as- Did the you host- say 68,000? 68,000 screenings we've done since 2018. And that also includes the host population because they're identified as being very important as well. And so there's been a huge need for things like glasses, which are given to them for free 
thanks to the you know, generosity of our you know our donors, we were able to do that program. Unfortunately, you know, with COVID, it's just really complicating, you know, things. But we do have a vision centre there in that camp, and it's still running. It's still going. I know you probably get funding from multiple sources, including grants and whatnot, but you also raise money and ask for individual donations, yeah? We rely entirely on donations. We couldn't do our work without donations. We have a huge reliance on generous individual donors, as well as we have corporate partnerships. FedEx, extremely generous supporter. They gave us the aeroplane. They actually provide all the pilots, volunteer their time for free to fly the plane for us which is really heartwarming. And they, they are so personally invested in our mission. And so we do have corporate partners and we have Omega who've been fantastic as well and have given us, they give us teddy bears actually on the airplane for the children. So they have these always teddy bears. So it helps to relax the kids if they're going to be on the plane, which is a very scary thing. They've never seen a plane before. And there's this, you know, these doctors on this plane and it's frightening. And so the doctor will give the child the bear and explain what's going to happen to them by showing it on the bear's eye and then when the child comes out of surgery the bear is with the child and it has the patch on the same eye that the child had the operation and they just hold on to it for comfort so omega produce those and give those teddy bears to us and they've also helped us with their celebrity ambassadors so we've had daniel craig come out and uh, spread awareness about our mission and Cindy Crawford. We need that. We need to spread the word. We need donations. And the need is more urgent now than ever because of the backlog of cases through COVID. You can imagine that a lot of the resources globally have been channeled to fighting COVID-19. And so a lot of non-urgent eye health and eye care has had to go on the back burner. So we're going to see this huge backlog of cases that are going to be need to be treated, which needs more ophthalmologists, more optometrists, more resources. Omega is the watch company, right? Omega is a Swiss watch company. Mm-hmm. Swiss watch company. And Daniel Craig is the reason why you joined Orbis. Right. Got it. <laughs> okay. I get it. I'm with you, you know me. I, I You're beginning you. to know me quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. If Bond is there, I can do this. Exactly. So- I'm glad you touched on this because I was curious and I've spoken to so many different causes and nonprofits and social impact programs throughout COVID. And it's been challenging because, you know, first go way back to Trump takes office. And this is not a partisan or political statement, but you did have this surge of what was then called rage donations in support of certain charities and organizations and nonprofits that were battling some of Trump's social policies, right? Then you have COVID, which redirected, like you said, frontline workers and resources for all the right reasons towards battling this global pandemic. Then you had the murder of George Floyd, which then sparked the movement for more equality and equity among folks who are either marginalized or living in the margin in communities or individually, whether it is gender, race, or ethnicity, right? So in the mind of a consumer, a donor, or a corporate who can no longer be brand neutral on issues, it's impossible for all the right reasons. There are all these things that you need to help correct and support in the world. And I can only imagine that this is one of many, right? And it's also still important. In your role as a communicator, how do you bring that to the fore without disregard to the other very important things that I can put my money towards? But how do you make that part of the mix? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really tough. 
you know, we had to be really honest and transparent about our work and what this meant to us. We went out early to our donors to say, look, we have this urgent need. We know that there's a lot of pressure, you know, on everybody for share of wallet. As you said, you know, quite correctly, there are so many demands and so many needs. So we were able to, we went out and just demonstrated what we needed to do and what would be the danger of holding back and not being able to continue our work. Because if you think about it, you know, sight is so important. It's such an important part of life. If you can't see, you can't really do very much. It holds you back. It holds communities back. It's an economic burden as well. So you have to get these messages out in terms of, okay, what is the funds going to be used for? Why do you need to support us now? And what's going to be the future? I think that that we were so blessed by and we were so pleased to see the response that we got. Our funding did not go away. People were still generous. People are still giving us money because they believe in our mission. We have a very strong mission. A lot of people are very personally invested in. And so we were able to go out with our marketing campaigns. With our, We had a, our own podcast called Sightlines, which talked about our work through interviews with our head of clinical services, just to bring our mission to life and talk about COVID and talk about and making it relevant. You know, we have to be relevant. You can't be tone deaf about your mission without recognizing the world we live in. So putting in our COVID messaging was absolutely critical. We were talking about, you know, one of our nurses actually was from Wuhan. So right in the beginning, she was in lockdown in Wuhan. And she was the one who actually did worked on a paper about infection control in Chinese hospitals. So these are some of the kind of relevant stories that we can bring. And we also, and earlier in our conversation, you talked about how important it is to be uplifting. And our mission is very uplifting. And we wanted to have something good to talk about with all this negative news going on and the mental health damage that that does. This constant barrage of bad stories and negativity and COVID and COVID and crisis. And, and here's heroes. Here's some really heroic people doing heroic things. So we launched a whole series called Heroes of Orbis to recognize people who were battling COVID. We had a doctor in Peru who was all PP'd up and she drove in throughout a really high COVID area to do screening for little babies who were at risk of retinopathy of prematurity, which means if they didn't get an eye screen when they were baby, they could live a, lead a life of blindness. That story really resonated. Look at the brave people out there doing this amazing work. So that was helpful for us. Yeah. And the organization, it was officially launched in the early 70s. Yeah. 73. Right. Yeah, but the first airplane took off in 1982. Okay. So when I was three and then when I was 12. So just to get that kind of around my head. Have you, and I know that you celebrate a lot of the frontline workers and the physicians and healthcare workers. Have you been able to go back, like you had said, and also surface some of the stories of children at the time who basically their sight was restored or blindness was avoided because of Orbis's good work. And now look at them today. They are poet laureate or they are, you know, running a nation or running a company or running another nonprofit. Has there been any sort of look back and building of that storytelling? Because I think that could be very powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we've got two stories and both of them are from Mongolia. In fact, the most recent one. So there's a little girl, tiny little girl called Mala in Mongolia. When she was 42 days old, she had an operation to correct congenital cataracts that she was born with. And so a doctor that we trained in Mongolia 
operated on her. She was the youngest person ever in Mongolia to receive eye surgery. She was 42 days old. And you'll see her now. She's got these beautiful pink glasses. She's absolutely tiny. And she goes for regular checkups to make sure that her eyes are, are working. So her entire life has changed. So from, from one relatively simple operation, she's now able to go on and live a life and get an education, etc. And then also in Mongolia, we actually have a board member in Canada who's Mongolian called Bulgan. And when she was a little girl, her grandparents were both killed in a car accident. She was in a car and she had uh, trauma and she had a problem with her eyes. And she was aged about eight years old. And the Flying Our Hospital happened to be in Mongolia at that time. And the doctor helped to to treat her and teach the, the local doctor how to take care of her eyes because previously she just had to have this very painful treatment into her tear ducts. And so now she, after having had that surgery, went on to become a businesswoman and she then emigrated to Canada. And she lives in Canada and she is now a huge supporter of Orbis because basically Orbis saved her sight. And she's gone on to be an entrepreneur, a businesswoman, and also a Canadian board member for Orbis. That's amazing. And I'm sure there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of stories like that, that probably some people might not even realize they've been a beneficiary of Orbis, right? And I can't believe that you're from Queens. You don't sound like you're from Queens, New York. It's amazing to me. That's a joke. It's a bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just the queen. You're just the queen. Exactly. Exactly. We all want to be the queen. So Louise, like, it was great to have you on. I appreciate how generous you are with your time. Everything that you do and what Orbis does, I think is nothing short of spectacular. If our listeners want to donate to Orbis, which is my plea to them to donate to Orbis, what's the easiest, fastest way to do that? So our website is orbis.org. That's the easiest, fastest way to donate. And thank you, Em, for that. And also, we love people to you know, talk about us and share the word and share this podcast would be really helpful for us. And it's not just about sight. I think about what you're doing. I mean, our eyes and the eyes of our loved ones and our friends and our partners are literally windows into each other's souls. And you guys are basically keeping those windows open. And I think that's just incredibly meaningful. So I appreciate everything that you do. I promise to visit. I promise to donate. And I encourage all my listeners to do the same. So thank you, Lucas. Thank you. I love that. Thank you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.